Welcome to House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. If you're ready to get your physical, emotional, and spiritual life in order, join us for the next hour as we meet some interesting people who will share stories of success and wisdom that you can apply to your own life. Now, here's Dr. Connie. Welcome to Dr. Connie's House Calls for the month of June. It is the month for grads and dads. So I begin with congratulations to several people. Madison Scott, who is graduating from high school this month and going off to the University of Arizona. Kudos to you, Madison. To Lily Lloyd, who graduated recently from ASU and is doing some work with the EMT community before she pursues neuroscience. We have a lot of birthdays this month, and let me go through them quickly. We have Robert Bunn, who turns five, Danny Williams, my Aunt Carmen in San Diego, Lori Batchelder, Tony Lacombe, who's a dear friend of mine, Dr. Jimmy Giannis, happy birthday. My husband and wife team, Tracy and Jeff Goebel, my friend Deborah Rochelle in Cave Creek, Dimitri Haniotis, and my cousin Gina in Northern California. Happy birthday, guys. June is also the month of brides, so we have anniversaries coming up. We have Deb Beatty, my former White House nurse, and her husband, Rick, celebrating their first anniversary. They were married on June 5th. Interestingly, uh, she was a widow. He was a widower. We'll probably feature their story on my other podcast, Widow's Walk in the Future, makes a great story. And also Dr. Kirsten Painter and Daniel celebrated their one-year anniversary. They are now in Slovakia enjoying their new life. So let me get to the topic of our June show. When I think of the month of June, I think of dad. We think of our fathers. What do we call our father? Well, it's dad or dada or daddy or baba or pop or pops or papa. It is the man who fathered you, but also is the man who raised you. Somebody once said that anybody can be a father, but very few men can be dad. And I think that's the case as we grow up. Who is the man who is a male figure who raised you to be the person you are, who impacted your life so significantly you owe so much to them? So where do we get Father's Day? The first Father's Day was celebrated in June 19, 1910, in the state of Washington. It wasn't until 1972, 58 years later, after President Woodrow Wilson made it official after Mother's Day. So Mother's Day came first, followed by Father's Day. So whether you have a biological dad or dad through adoption or a stepdad or a granddad or some type of male figure, take this time off this month to celebrate them and thank them. A lot of times they don't get much thanks, right? They're your problem solver, they're the guy who hands the check. I mean, why don't you thank them? So how do we celebrate Father's Day in this country? Well, number one thing is we buy them stuff. Well, what do we buy dad? Well, we buy them ties. It used to be buy them ties. We buy them sweaters. How much money do we spend on dad? In the United States for Father's Day in 2020, $17 billion were spent in this country for Father's Day. The average American spent about $150 per person for dad. But you want to guess how much we spent for Mother's Day? Dad, we spent $17 billion. Mom, we spent $25 billion. So mom gets more of the... Uh, the money there. But let's not underestimate the power and the, and the impact of our father. The, the dad's role in raising children has increased over 30 to 40 years over that time period. And the, the observations over the past 40 years are dads are definitely more hands-on with their children and their family. Uh, it used to be when I was born in those old days, years and years ago, 
dads were relegated to the waiting room smoking a cigarette for the baby to be born. After they were born, they're smoking their cigars. So they really weren't part of the labor of their baby, uh, weren't in the delivery room and just were handed this newly bundle of joy and had no idea what kind of labor the wife went through. So it has really changed significantly over the last 40 years to the point that dads are their Lamaze coach. They're helping him through the labor. They are there cutting the cord. They're the first one to see their baby. They're definitely hands-on more and more over the generations that have passed. And I think what's really made it more significant has been the pandemic most recently where dads work remote, dad at our home. They're home all the time. So they're there seeing their children. They're helping out their wives. They're impacting children more significantly than they have in any prior generation. So we look at dads and we look at what they do and we look at the significance of fatherhood. And I always look to male figures in Father's Day as to who they are. And I like picking friends and acquaintances who've had this experience with raising their own family. And in studio today, I have a dear family friend who is a professional dad because he's raised sons in that sense. He's uh, fathered and raised four sons. And my guest today is Craig Clifford from Spokane, Washington. Craig is a real estate developer from Spokane. He was born and raised in Minot, North Dakota, but he grew up in North Dakota and Southern California. He's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. He has an MBA from UC Santa Clara. He is a former pilot who my late husband John and I met about 11 or 12 years ago at our old airport. I think I was refueling a plane. I think Craig wanted to hire me to do that job for his plane. But anyway, Craig enjoys golf, and he loves to tell great stories to his friends. But most important of all, his major achievement, of which he is proud, he is the father to four sons. So, Craig, welcome on our show. Dr. Connie, it's a pleasure to be here today. I've so, been so anticipating to being here. I th yeah, I, I knew you would. I knew this. That you've never done. You are a virgin to all this, right? This is the, the first time for you to be on a podcast? Yeah, absolutely. It's a time to shine or tarnish. <laughs> I think you're going to do well. You'll probably do so well that you'll want to take <coughs> over my show. People will be asking to talk to you versus me. So I, I look back at your history, and you've shared a little bit about your upbringing and, and the people in your lives and... And you look at, you know, you being a father of, of your four sons. How old were you when you first became a father for the first time? Well, um, it was my second marriage, and I was 35 years old. And uh, I had always wanted, with my own relationship with my father, he was always trying to make a living. And so my relationship with him was more of a, an employee trying to uh, grasp the significance of how to make a living. And I'd go around with him in the countryside in North Dakota, and uh, he would educate me on things like uh, income tax and uh, capital gains. And this is the way we communicated primarily. And uh, we had very little time for time off and fun and games. So I wanted to be able to have enough money to where I could spend time with my children and not feel guilty about it or feel that I couldn't spend time with them. So that happened at about the age 35, and uh, we were blessed with our first son, Ryan, at 35 years old, me being 35 years old. He was just an infant, and luckily, with the modern t uh, program of birth, uh, my wife had to have four cesareans, and I was present in all four uh, surgeries, and I'll never forget in Santa Monica, California, being in the operating room, the doctor says, 
Well, uh, we're going to perform this the uh, cesarean now, and he says, I'm going to make a little mark. Well, the mark was not with a, a black uh, marker pen. It was with a, a scalpel. And all of a sudden, there's a new baby. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And uh, it was quite uh, quite the sight to see a child just all of a sudden appear on the uh, on the uh, on the scene. So it, it was the joy of my life that first boy, and followed by uh, three more. You know, you. It's amazing how you were so blessed with four sons, and we're going to talk more about him. But do you mind if we go back to your dad because? You know, you talk about him teaching you all these business aspects. Why do you think he, what was the purpose? Did he know? I mean, how long did he live? I mean, how you, long was he influencing you? You know, my life? dad had uh, something called spinal meningitis in 1946. I was born in 1944. And uh, I think this had a great uh, effect on him because his health probably hadn't been that well, that, that good in the uh, early days. And me being a, a young boy... Um, he always wanted to educate me on the ways of business, um, which I didn't particularly like. I would, in the summer times, which I had the most time to spend with him, I would have rather been out playing with my friends and uh, enjoying uh, relaxation and being at the beach or uh, uh, at the golf course or swimming pool or something like this. But instead, I was able to uh, go to, when I was in the eighth grade, go to Minot Business College in North Dakota and and uh, learn uh, accounting and, uh, uh, and uh, how to type. And these were things that the other kids in the eighth grade weren't doing. All the kids that were with me were, uh, had graduated from high school, so I felt kind of strange doing that, but there was, a, there was a method in that madness, apparently. So uh, early on, he taught you these skills that you learned today. He right, had some... well, there, you know, so I got the feeling that, you know, maybe his health is so bad that he's accelerating my education. And that worked out great, and I did all kinds of different things from uh, running b grain bin crews, rock-picking crews on our farms, uh, working in his office, uh, working uh, around the oil business uh, and uh, maps and things of this nature that you have uh, access to in the oil business. And so it, it, was, it was great, except I got the feeling that, why am I doing all these things? And uh, it was uh, to to uh, bring me along so that I would be able to uh, go into business with him and uh, learn all the things that he'd learned in his life. He was an attorney, and in North Dakota, it was very difficult to make money doing anything. He had some telephone companies and uh, law practice, and many times he would take cows and pigs and uh, and chickens in exchange for uh, what the uh, individuals owed him. He bartered. So yeah. It was a barter system. So um, the unfortunate thing was that I was getting this education, and I was prepared. I wasn't really thinking about anything else or using my own talents to try to figure out what I wanted to do in life, and I was more or less following his program. The problem with that was that he passed away when I was 19 years old. He was 56 years old, and uh, this was quite troubling to me because I was not prepared to step out on my own. I was basically lost. I it took me eight or ten years to find my own way after that. So how, so how did that impact your ability to be dad for your boys? Well, what it taught me was I've got, let, I've got to let these kids be able to think for themselves on their own two feet. And as a consequence, rather than try to micromanage their um, 
development in life from the time they were infants till they had graduated from college, I really didn't say too much about what, what was going on. Mainly, I led by my example. And my example was basically to work hard, to uh, um, try to do the best I could, spend as much time with them as I possibly could. And I made time for them because my father really didn't have much time to make for me. And I didn't want that same mistake to happen. And that's why I was happy to wait till I was 35 years old, till I was uh, pretty well established in business. So that's, that's kind of the sequence of events that, uh, that went on in my thinking. And it worked out because the boys really never came to me asking for direct advice on things. They just kind of seemed to do things which I agreed to, and uh, we didn't have any conflicts over it. And uh, they all chose paths which made them happy and made me happy too because I didn't have to lead them astray into something they didn't want to do. So your dad dying young and teaching you all those things really impacted how you raised your boys, right? Right. It was a double-edged sword. Yeah. It really was tough on me for eight or nine years. On the other hand, it gave me a direction that I wanted to lead them into in order to be their own men and to be able to uh, obtain whatever success in life that that, uh, focus that they had chosen could give them. So when you look back at when you raise your, your four sons, and they're how old, 41, 40, how old are they now? 30, 38, and my deceased son would be 33 years old now. And we're going to talk about him in the second segment, but when you look back at the times you, you were raised, you and your wife Georgiana were raising them, what was the hardest time? What was the toughest part of that? You know, it was probably the beginning years. Um, we... Uh, we, my wife is from uh, Butte in Missoula, Montana, and she came down to this uh, foreign land called uh, West Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a fish out of water, and it took her a little while to become acclimated. And she didn't have the wide open spaces for her horses and for her big dogs. She had two uh, Irish Setter retrievers. And uh, we brought one retriever down there and uh, lived in an apartment in Santa Monica. And that was kind of okay, but you could tell she was very unhappy. And uh, we then figured out, well, we should buy a house. Well, we bought a house. We couldn't afford Santa Monica, so believe it or not, the, the least expensive places then were the city of Malibu, California, which was about 20 miles up the road. And th- people thought it was exotic, but people couldn't f- afford somewhere else. There was affordable housing in, in Malibu. So that's what we uh, ended up doing. And then we had our first child in uh, 19, what was it, 1980, I believe, 1980-82. So when you were raising him, what, what was it just trying to get him to fit in the environment? Or, you know, you, you're outnumbered. You know, when you have two or more kids, you're outnumbered. And who did the discipline? Who did the everyday? You were working, and Georgiana stayed home and raised them. Well, you know, my, my wife had always been a, uh, a career woman. She had a master's degree in, uh, in education, and uh, she was very good at counseling uh, kids in high school. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, she's got a lot more talents in this field than I do. And it makes sense for her to stay home and me to try to make the living. And so we divided up our uh, activities by uh, me going to the office and uh, trying to get ahead in the business. And I wanted her to devote and she wanted also to devote full time to raising the children. 
And I think that was that's one thing that I see in life today where I've built a number of child care centers and the kids come in as young as five months old and who raises them but a paid caretaker. And that's great, but it doesn't impart the same love and affection that uh, a woman would who's caring for their own children. So you spent the time, you had the devotion, you had that. You got your kids through high school and college. And are you in business with some of them now, some of your boys? Well, what's happened is that, um, you know, I dreamed of being in business with my dad. And uh, he was going to be my leader and guide through my life. And uh, that didn't work out. As a consequence, I had to uh, grapple with working for other companies, Ford Motor Company, taking a company public in Los Angeles, uh, a sign maintenance company that I ran, different different things that I did. And then I started saying, well, you know, this is not what I'm happy with. I want to be on my own. So I started selling real estate. And from that, I started uh, developing properties. And that's what I still do today, even at my young age of 78. So, uh, but to answer your question more thoroughly, which was, what was your question again? Working with your sons. Working I think with you, my sons. Yeah, so how my, does that work so out So my for dream you? was to have my sons work for me, whereas my father didn't, wasn't able to me work with my father. Mm-hmm. So uh, about 15 years ago, my long-term employee in Los Angeles for 19 years said, hey, you've divested yourselves from a number of your properties in Los Angeles. I think I want to strike out on my own. And I'd helped him get started in life. And so he was pretty well set financially because I had given the formula to uh, work the real estate business. So I went to my son and I said, you know, this is the opportunity. You've been working as a financial analyst in San Diego for three years. I'm uh, 58 or something. And this is time for you to, or I was 65, I guess. I said, I don't want to train somebody else. I'm going to train one more person, and it's either going to be you or somebody else, and then I'm done. So I gave him the opportunity to come to work for me, and uh, that was 13, 14 years ago. And uh, he's now 41 uh, or 42 years old, and uh, we've, we, we actually get along. He has to listen to me yell and <laughs> scream every once in a while. But for the most part, uh, I let him run the day-to-day operations, which is great because it frees my time up uh, greatly, which I do not enjoy being involved with the day-to-day operations anymore. Uh, My second son, Mitchell, he was born in 19, let's see, two years later, 82, I guess. And uh, Mitchell um, is a professional pilot and uh, very, very successful at that. And he's kind of, by osmosis, taken on the idea of real estate developing and property management. And he's... uh, doing his own thing in the real estate business, in addition to contract flying uh, Gulfstream jets and Canada Air Challenger jets and managing uh, jet aircraft for uh, wealthy individuals. Uh, The other son, Drew, um, he's 38, and Drew uh, works in our office running our accounting and uh, a lot of our property management fields. So I'm really happy that my sons work with me. I've turned over the flying duties to Mitchell, so I don't have to sweat that anymore. I don't have to redo the recurrency training. I don't have to do uh, uh, the initial five or ten hours it takes uh, to get back in the saddle, so to speak, and go into large uh, airports like Los Angeles or Denver or uh, San Francisco and those places. And that's that's kind of a big relief because every once in a while you don't mind sitting in the back seat and uh, having a cup of coffee. 
Um, the the other the real uh, one of the big tragedies of my life is the fact that we lost our son at 30 years old, uh, three and a half years ago, and that was our son John, who um, his last six months in uh, college he was ready to graduate from Gonzaga University in business in finance, and uh, he had met this uh, lovely gal that he'd known for probably most of his life. Um, and he didn't tell me this, but he said, well, dad, you know, he didn't tell me how involved he was with this, with this lady, uh, Camille, uh, Bryant was her name at the time. And all of a sudden he says, you know, I'm not sure that I can get a really good job as a financial analyst somewhere, but I'm thinking that if I was an accountant, which I'd always pushed the boys, get as much accounting as you can, because business is based on whether you make a profit or lose a profit, and you go out of business if you don't make money. So he took up the challenge and uh, was ready to graduate from Gonzaga in his fourth year. Uh, he said, you know, I want to go another nine months and I can get my accounting degree. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. He went summer school and finished in the next uh, quarter or semester at the time, got his accounting degree and uh, moved to Los Angeles and became an accountant with KPMG uh, accounting firm and did uh, private equity audit audits, which is a very high-end, uh, difficult uh, endeavor with them. And he did great with it, his interpersonal relationships with people. He must have learned storytelling from one of his family members. I don't know who. Maybe the dad, right? Yeah, maybe the dad. It's hard to say. Anyway, uh, he was really loved by KPMG. And unfortunately, at 27 years old, after working for them three or four years, he contracted sarcoma cancer, and, of course, you think you can beat cancer all the time because everybody beats it. But in his case, sarcoma is a very fatal uh, type of cancer, and he suffered with it for three years. The last four or five months, my wife and I moved to uh, Santa Monica and lived in our apartment house, which was and, and lived in the apartment right behind where he and his wife and one little child were living. So uh, that was... Uh, I wanted to be close to him and support him in his last days because he was seemed to be getting very ill. But, of course, there's always the hope that, hey, you're going to have a miracle and that you're going to survive. And uh, fortunately, the odds are against you with sarcoma. We're going to take a quick break, Craig, because I want to come back after the break as we honor fathers. But we also, in a, in a sort of indirect way, we're going to honor you as a dad because there's some there's a letter that your son John wrote to you before he passed. So we're going to take a quick break on Dr. Connie's house calls. Yeah, I'd uh, love to share that with all of you. Because I think there's a huge message about what counts and what, what's meaningful at the end of life when you look. puts everything in perspective about what we do in this life. So stay tuned on house calls with Dr. Connie and Craig Clifford as we talk about honor thy father and celebrating the holiday of dad. So stay tuned and return later. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the president of the United States? 
My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families. Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano. This is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. Dr. Connie Mariano is a groundbreaker. She was the White House physician to three presidents, toured the world on Air Force One, and has had countless amazing experiences. The one thing that life didn't prepare her for was becoming a widow. After losing her beloved husband, John, in a tragic accident, Dr. Connie joined the one million women who were widowed in the United States each year. While her journey as a widow has been one of intense grief and sorrow, it has also been one of extraordinary growth and rebirth. Now, Dr. Connie is sharing what she's learned, joined by her knowledgeable guests to help anyone struggling with this deeply personal and often lonely journey of their own. Tune into The Widow's Walk, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. Welcome back to Dr. Connie's House Calls on Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is our June show. We celebrate our dads and our grandpas and the fathers-to-be. And I have in studio Craig Clifford, who is sharing with us about raising four sons with his amazing wife, Georgiana, and the challenges of raising children to become good men. I think that's the challenge. And... You, you shared a little bit in our last segment about your, your son, John, who passed away in 2020. And I think when I look back at the lessons we learned from people, it's at the end of life, when people are facing the end of life, you find the true meaning of what really counts in this life. Do you mind sharing with us the things he left behind for you and, and some of the memories that I think the audience will find very touching? Not at all, Connie. You know... The interesting thing is that um, I really never quite knew how my boys felt about me, and I always told them that I loved them, and of course, my role was the secondary disciplinarian. The first uh, course in discipline came through, came from my wife, who uh, was very schooled in uh, not allowing any uh, um, kids to get away with with too much, and she gave the kids the the, the fear of uh, Georgiana, which uh, was quite quite uh, quite quite strong, and and they did have great respect for it. 
So they really had to screw up to uh, uh, to uh, to render my 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 uh, uh, advice to them. Um, you know, I didn't really realize what this was all about until just before John's death, and a good friend of mine uh, from Spokane, who also was from Butte, Montana, he's got absolutely wonderful voice, he's an architect. Out of the blue, he sent me this uh, little uh, uh, poem, and it just happened to be the day before John died, which was the 26th of uh, February, 2020. And we had just celebrated John's birthday on the uh, 23rd of February, which was a Sunday, and all uh, all the family was there in John's apartment to uh, celebrate this uh, day with with him. We weren't sure how many more he had or uh, what was going to happen. It's just something that was in God's hands, and we had no control over it. But this little uh, poem went like this. My son John, I closed my eyes for but a moment, and suddenly a man stood where my boy used to be. I may not be able to carry you now in my arms, but I'll always carry you in my heart. You have given me so many reasons to be proud of the man you have become, but the proudest moment for me is telling others that you are my son. I love you now and forever, John. Now, one thing Georgiana always told me from the beginning was, we've got to cherish these times with our boys, and we've got to spend as much time as we possibly can because... When they're grown, it will have happened in the blink of an eye. And I think back at that um, when we were living in our home in Malibu um, many, many times and realized just how true that phrase was. We need to spend the time with them now because it will be gone in the blink of an eye. And I, I, it, it, it happened in less than a blink of an eye because I thought about it. It seemed like a long time when it was happening, but it happened instantly. And what even gave me a greater idea of how appreciated um, we were by our sons was the expressions that John made in a letter to Georgiana and I, which was given to me on Christmas Day 2019, about three months before he passed away. And uh, he gave me this letter in an envelope. The front of the envelope was Mom and Dad. And... Uh, I opened it on Christmas Day, and it read like this. Dear Mom and Dad, in lieu of presents, I decided to share some of my reflections with you on this Christmas. I can't really think of any gifts that would impress you, and I haven't been much in the shopping mood the last few months, so hopefully this letter will be better received than a new shirt or tie or other physical gifts. That's basically stuff. I have had a lot of time for thoughts as I've battled my disease for the last few years, and especially now in the past few months as I've been more physically impaired and less able to be active and busy. Death is something I have had plenty of time to reflect upon. It happens to everyone. Nobody knows when it will happen, and when it does happen, you don't get to take anything with you. What you get for certain is that you leave behind your legacy and the memories. I can confidently say that I am happy and content with the way I've left things if I were to suddenly pass. I'm able to thank both of you for, one, the chance at life, and two, the experiences I've had which make me who I am. 
I'm proud of the way I was raised, and I am grateful for it. I didn't realize when I was an adolescent how well off we were. Since I was a kid, and kids don't understand everything, luckily you, my mom and dad, knew that raising me with a strong work ethic would help me to gain the confidence I needed in life to make the world work for me rather than against me. I never liked shoveling manure or snow or painting industrial buildings or spraying weeds. I learned at an early age I could decide I didn't want to do any of those things forever and that going to college and getting an education was a good way to go to ensure I didn't have to do those laborious tasks forever. What I learned early on was that the most kids never had to do any of the hard work that I did as a child, and I found that all those experiences had made me tougher than my peers. Now I can look back and say I always did something when I was able to. Thank you for making me the man I've become. I'm not a perfect person. Nobody is. Now I now I know that I can be less than pleasant to be around sometimes, especially if I'm in a lot of pain. I've been working hard to just be happy with life and not to get too stressed out about little things. I think I've made improvements and done a decent job of this lately. To me, it seems that the most important thing in life as an individual is internal happiness. It matters far less what the world perceives of my rank, position, lifestyle, etc. than what I think about myself. Sure, I get angry sometimes, but I really am confident with who I am and my principles, and that gives me great strength. I hope that you too are able to focus on what makes you happy, and I hope that you are satisfied with your lives, accomplishments, and who you have ended up being as a person. Thank you both for so much more than I can put into words. Love, John. Now, Connie, i got to tell you something. When I read this letter on Christmas Day, I'm not even sure that I had the energy to show it to my wife, Georgiana. I probably did, but for some strange reason, I folded the letter back up, put it in its envelope, and put it in a pocket in my briefcase. And I never thought about the letter again until the day that John died. I was with him all night long, and I, we, weren't, we had no idea that this was going to be his last night on earth, but he wasn't feeling well. He called me over from the apartment next door at about 7 o'clock at night, and I spent the evening with him and through his last hours. And um, what was so amazing is that I was with him for the last hour from 4.30 till 5.42 in the morning when he passed away, and I went back to the apartment next door, about 10 o'clock in the morning, I opened the briefcase. I reached, I was just kind of checking things out. I reached in one of the envelopes, in one of the uh, uh, compartments, and I brought out this envelope. I said, what is this? And it says, Mom and Dad. I opened it up, and I thought, oh, my God. This is the letter he wrote me mm -hmm. as our Christmas present, and I, I was given on Christmas Day. And, you know, some would even say this, there, there must have been some kind of a faith message in this. And I was just absolutely overwhelmed when I, when I read it. And I read it to Georgiana that morning again because it, it was so um, emotional to me, evidently, when I first received it that I, that I 
they put it away for for later contemplation. And that later contemplation just happened to be by some unknown reason, because I usually don't go in my briefcase and shuffle around the day that he died. So what it told me is that he appreciated us being kind of tough on him because he'd go to his other friends' houses and they would he would pitch in and help out and do all these things. And the parents would call me and said, what the heck did you do to your kid that made him pitch in and work like he does? And, you know, I'd say to him, you know something? I always felt that these kids had to stand on their own and they had to make it on their own no matter how successful we were. It's that they've got to be happy with themselves because I saw kids in college that were trust fund kids that went to University of California at Berkeley. One was an heir to the uh, APGNE uh, Bank of America fortune, another a huge advertising uh, conglomerate. These kids thought that they could make it through college, and it was kind of tough at Berkeley without working hard or enjoying, uh, you know, enjoying the idea of having to work. And what they did was they drank and had a great time for one semester. Second semester, they were gone. And they had no friends and to deal with all day long. And they'd come by the fraternity and, uh, you know, we didn't have time for them. And both of them within a couple of years had committed suicide. And so that was left an indelible mark on me that no matter how much we have, my kids are not going to be trust fund kids. And uh, I think it's played out very well because they all have tremendous work ethics. John had a tremendous work ethic, and they all are personable kids, and people like them. And if you can impart that into your children, I think you've done a good job. At least that's what we tried to do. You know, I want to thank you for reading that beautiful letter, which was hard to not for me to cry, read, hearing you read that. This you is know, the first time I've ever been able to read it without crying. Because, you know, parents aren't supposed to bury their children. You know that. I'm Absolutely a widow, not. I buried my husband, but as a parent, you just, it's something unthought of. And for you to bring him into this life and to be there as he exited, but I think what makes it even more poignant is that at the end of life, the clarity and how beautifully that letter was written for somebody who's only 30 years old, had left behind two little kids, left behind a wife, left behind his parents, his brothers, and to know death was imminent. And to be that close to the other side and to write so beautifully, what struck me about that letter is he talked about internal happiness, that that is something to strive for, that he had internal happiness. And I look at the word internal and I see the word eternal because that's what sustains you. It isn't the trust fund or the money or the title or the stuff that stays. It's what matters most are the love and the relationships. The other thing you pointed out about <clears throat> you raising your kids, it goes at, back to the question of making the choice. Do you want them safe or do you want them strong? Which do you choose? You know, Jordan Peterson wrote a book years ago that was a bestseller about things that mattered the most. And one of the things he poses about parenting, <laughs> do you want your children safe or you want them strong? And life is tough and you cannot bubble wrap your children. And a lot of times the tough stuff really comes from dad. I mean, I'm perhaps I'm stereotyping dads. You know, my mom was always comforting and loving and it was the dad who gave me the tough love, right? 
Right. You know, right. Dads made made us who we are to make us tough and hardworking. Life is tough. You, you had know? to be the the bad guy. Yeah. There's yeah. always two people in a relationship. One's the loving mother mm-hmm. that takes care of you and nurtures you, and the other is the guy that comes home and says, "You can't do that. Mm-hmm. This is the way it's going to be, mm-hmm. and it's either my way or the highway." And uh, you hate to do that sometimes, but when you've had enough experiences in life where you feel that you've had the confidence to tell them that, you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, it's just going to come back and backfire on them later. It'll be law enforcement coming after you. But you also showed raised children who are grateful. They're grateful, and he actually thanked you. He was not a victim. Even though he was dying of this horrible disease, it never sounded like he viewed himself as a victim, and he was grateful to you. So when you look at that gratitude that he had, and you look at your life, and you look at your children and your grandchildren, so the question I have for you, Craig, is what what would you want them to say about you at the end of your life, at your eulogy? Well, he didn't leave me enough money. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I would what I would like to say, have them say to me, is that you know my dad, he spent as much time as he possibly could with me. He answered my questions when I asked them. He gave me example for which I could live my life and feel good about myself. And I can't think of too many other things that I would uh, attribute to that I've done that that are remarkable. They're not none of them are remarkable. They're just things that you have to do and you, and the main thing is you got to spend time with your children. I've seen so many wealthy people. I've had educational counselors, high-end educational counselors that had super wealthy parents. And what do they do? They ship them off to Rocky Mountain Academy in Montana or one of these academies because their kids are uncontrollable. And uh, the reason they're uncontrollable is because the parents were too busy being big shots. And uh, I just never wanted the kids to say, you never spent any time with me. You didn't do things with me. You know, how do, what, so why do you expect me not to have screwed up? And uh, any time that, they, that I had the ability to impart my thoughts with them, I did. And whether they liked it or not, that's what they were going to get. Well, you didn't delegate the rearing part. I think the most valuable thing of anything is the time you invest in that relationship or anything that matters. And, and you spent that time. You, you really did you spend know, I, that time. I spent you the time. I spent the time, but the real hero in this adventure was my wife, Georgiana, mm-hmm. because she was there on the firing line day to day. She had to take all the abuse, all the crying, all the, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And she's the one that gave me the easy job of saying, give them the last word. And uh, what she had was a job that I wouldn't, I didn't want because that was a tough, it was easy to go off to work and uh, get on the phone and tell stories and things of that nature and, you know, try to use my brain a little bit to think how to get ahead. But the tough part was to raise four boys because now you see families with two kids and the wife is absolutely berserk. She doesn't know how to do it. The husband doesn't want much of a part of it. And uh, the kids kind of suffer as a result because there's not a a unified relationship. I learned a long time ago, I was working for Ford Motor Company, and I was given a little task with another guy who became head of worldwide racing for Ford 
to do a study. And he looked at me and said, you know, this isn't a very big deal. And it's certainly not big enough for both of us. And I said, I tell you what, why don't you just do it then? And I was happy with that because he wanted to, you know, get somewhere in life. And uh, he thought that this would help him. And he didn't want me to share with him in that. So I said, fine, you do that. So I learned from that kind of when somebody really has to do something, you let them delegate it. And Georgiana was far better at communicating with the kids, raising the kids. And, you know, I'd gotten away with a lot in life as a young kid. So it would have been better that I didn't be the example of what you can do and not do because they might not have turned out as well as they did because dad might have said, well, I guess I can let you do that because I did a lot worse. Well, you need a partner. You, <laughs> you need, need a partner, a partner. who's supportive. That's why people get together, I hope, to be partners and soulmates. Somebody introduced me to the concept of soulmate a while back, and I thought, what on earth does that mean? I, I, I really have no idea. But the more I've thought about it, the more uh, unbelievable that concept is. And I ask people, especially you know my neighbor's, my neighbor uh, lost her husband uh, a couple months ago, and I saw her about a month later, and I she was you know pretty teared up and stuff. And I said, "Well, do you do you feel that you and Bob were soulmates?" She did not hesitate. She said, "Absolutely." And you think about it, a lot of people go through life, a lot of couples through life, and they just go through the motions. The first couple of years are great, but if you can say she's my soulmate or he's my soulmate, you've really made it in life. It's true. If you can find your soulmate once or twice, whatever it takes in this life, you're truly blessed. Before we end, I want just a quick question because you not only have your sons, but you have grandchildren. And you have four grandchildren. You, you see two, you have three girls. Now you, now you got girls. You used to raise boys. Yeah. How's that different, Grandpa, with girls? Well, you know, not uh, two weeks ago, the children... My, my son Mitchell's children were in uh, Phoenix, and I've spent the winter in Phoenix. And, uh, you know, one of them now is eight years old, and the other, I think, is just on, on two. And uh, I probably spent more time with them than I had in the past, and I'm kind of a gruff guy, so it's taken them a while to warm up to me and to my, my, my sense of humor uh, or my level of humor. And... Uh, Anyway, it was just really great to have them hug you and uh, kind of say goodbye to you and hello to you when you uh, when you show up. And I thought, gee, this is really different. And thinking back a long time ago, they are different than little boys, and uh, it it's really a nice nice situation. Unfortunately, John's children um, live in Manhattan Beach, California now with uh, their mother who has uh, just had another baby, and she's remarried, um, which I'm very happy for. It's been three and a half years, and she was a young woman, 30 years old when John died, and having two little children, that's 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 a tough ro- road to hoe in life to have that happen to you. And it's it, it's been very, very difficult for her, I'm sure, um, due to the fact that distance and uh, uh some health problems in the family have made it difficult for us to get down there and spend much time. So I've greatly missed out on the relationship with those two children. So I, I really don't know them. Uh, 
I've probably only seen them three or four times uh, in the last three years. So um, I look forward to the future to where I can get to know them, especially my little protege, um, Eli. There's Eva and Eli. Eli is uh, a little over two now, a spitting image of John. And uh, he's got the Clifford name. And uh, he's the only boy that uh, can carry on the lineage. So um, I wish him the best. And little Eva, they're both precious children. And uh, Camille is doing a terrific job of raising him. So you couldn't ask for anything more than that. You know, you've really, I think, shared a lot of very personal things of which I'm very grateful. You know, we talk about raising sons. And dads and grandpa really impact women just as much. And, and having been raised by a very strong father... And there are studies that show that what makes a very strong, successful woman is a very strong male figure in your life. Because, you know, what do men teach us? I think fathers, father figures teach you to be tough. They teach you to be strong. But they also teach you to be very selective of the men you allow into your sphere of life. They teach you that you deserve to be respected by other men. And I think if you've got a strong male figure, women become the best women they can be because they have that that male figure. So definitely raising sons and raising daughters, they, they are blessed in many ways from that impact of that. But I can't believe our time is up. Didn't I tell you this is like the fastest hour that you'll ever be on podcast? You mean this is the first five minutes, right? Yeah, exactly. I thought it was only okay, five good minutes. Way. No. I'm good for another five minutes. <laughs> we'll have to have you come back. So we're gonna we're going to say goodbye to our listeners to their, our June show in which we celebrate Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you, Craig. Connie, I'm I'm grateful that you had me on the show, and I just wanted to try to impart, and I may not have done a very good job at it, but the few little things that we've uh, brought into our son's upbringing that may help other families and 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 uh, parents um, bring into their kids to help them get them through life because uh, it's very tough nowadays to uh, to make it in this world so well thanks you can use again. all the help you can get that's for sure thanks Th again thank you for happy father's me. day to you and happy father's day to all our dads out there and our granddads and our stepdads and thanks for listening in to house calls with dr connie and we'll talk to you next month take care and god bless you all Thank you again for joining us this week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. We'll be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a terrific week.